0: Gracious Father, um, for this uh, for this day, for your word, um, for this church, uh, for who we are in you, um, for your word which comes at us uh, uh, as law and as gospel, um, uh, thank you. Um, speak now, um, come, and allow your work to be done in your way, not liking for anything. In Jesus' name, amen. Good to see everyone. Um, I feel like I had a long break here, kind of pulling this back uh, after two or three weeks off doing the Nicaragua trip for a couple of those Sundays and and some others, but picking it back up this week going to look at um, the film Ordinary People, which I revisited this week. It is a good film. I don't know if anybody's seen that recently, but was that 1980? Is anybody up on that? So it was was a while. Um, It's worth going back to and and checking out. It's a a, a compelling film, so watch three short clips from that as well as um, uh, a few minutes from another TED Talk. Uh, but, um, and then next week, um, something I've uh, not ever picked up in a Sunday School class, um, but the the musician Lyle Lovett. Does anybody know Lyle Lovett? Do y'all like him? Love him. You know, he's from the same area of Texas that I'm from. I don't think that's why I like him, but a lot of his songs resonate with a lot of the, the area that I grew up in. Um, you know, he talks about the Brazos River, it feels like, in every other song. Um, and that was three miles from from my house, probably. So uh, so we'll look at some of Lyle Lovett's music next week, which I'm particularly um, looking forward to because I have no idea <laughs> really what we're going to talk about, but it'll be fun. Um, it's really, it's funny. It's one song that I've always wanted to play with um, called The Fat Girl, and uh, and that's why I'm going to do this class on it. So we're obviously going to listen to that song. I don't know what else we're going to do because it's only like two minutes long. Can't can't listen to that eight times, but we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, this week... Um, in ordinary people, and also in this clip, thinking about um, how this uh, the this short summer series has really kind of emerged on on connection, on identity, on what makes us alive, what makes us people. Um, uh, something I've picked up several times for those who are, you know often around my class specifically, or the Advent, you know, generally. all right. sorry. Um, Sort of an affront, and I'm by no means, you know, a philosopher by any means, uh, in any way, shape, or form. But you know, from eighth grade or whenever, um, heard of this guy. Um, I think it's even right. This tells you how bad it is. Um, Descartes. Um, I think, therefore, I am. Um, you know, that never sat well with me theologically. And and uh, a few years ago, put a little phrase on it and, and figured out why I don't like it. It's 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 not that. Um, we don't think. And therefore we have existence. We don't think our cognitions, our brain power, our rationality, our our uh, our ability to see ourselves and the world, and then most especially God truthfully, rationally. I mean that that that's that's farcical to, to my understanding of the scripture and, and, and human nature. Um, and so it made me think, well, what is it then? If Descartes' wrong, if it's not I think, therefore I am, what could it be? And then somewhere within the uh, the idea of a mago dei that I am made in the image of God. Um, what what guidance can we begin to think then, um, scripturally, theologically, faithfully, um, truthfully, um, calling a thing what it is? If if it's not I think therefore I am because what I think cannot be trusted. Well then it might have something to do with this idea of being made in the image of God. Um, what does that mean? Um, Well, as God exists in community, God exists within himself in relationship to himself, that's our entrance point, that we're made to be in relationship, that we're made to exist in a relationship not only with him, um, not only within ourselves, but primarily with each other. That's a huge part of what it is. Um, And so it's, I exist in relationship, and therefore I am. And the way I've picked this up, um, some of y'all may have. Heard me say this eight or ten times. Uh, I think it was William Blake. I don't know who said it because I can't find the quote again. Um, But if a man were to wake up, and this has a Hitchcock film written all over it, if a man was to wake up and then live his life, and it was Hughes who pointed out that that Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life is very similar to this idea um, to me, which then I finally watched um, last year, first time. Um, uh, If a man woke up, and moved through his life, uh, and he realized that he felt like nothing was different. But everybody else acted as if he didn't exist. Not even a snub, um, because a snub at least says existence. If someone who's contemptuous towards me at least validates that I'm occupying you know, a spot in the space-time continuum, so to speak. But just completely acted as if I wasn't there. How long do you think we'd last? How long do you think I would last? I mean, I think within a matter of a week, I'd go mad and then die of something. I don't have any idea what. But it wouldn't work. Um, I'm made in the image of God, and I'm fueled by relationships. I exist in relationships. Functional, dysfunctional, we're not talking about that yet, but just that I exist. And I know that I exist because I'm looking at you looking at me. I'm, I'm a... I'm aware when somebody's angry at me. I'm aware when somebody's ignoring me, which at least tells me that I'm occupying their space. Um, and that gives me existence. Now, that's just a way in. That's not redemptive. That's not, that's not grace. That's not life-giving. That's just the beginning of, of who we are. And that's how these films... Um, I think, can help us. That's what A River Runs Through It was. Um, that's what Ordinary People is going to be. There is a redemptive relationship in Ordinary People, but like my preface to to A River Runs Through It, it's not a Christian film, per se. I don't think there's... Um, there's not much grace here. There is a redemptive relationship between young man Conrad, Timothy Hutton's character, if you remember the movie, and the psychiatrist, Judd Hirsch's character. He was the the guy in Taxi, for, for those who are my age and older. Um, there's a redemptive relationship that's present. Um, but it's not its not Christian per se. Um, so why do we look at it? We look at it to um, listen to the first of the two words of God. Um, God delivers his word to us in two parts, and the two are never um, bedfellows, as Luther said. i going to use a lot of Luther today. Surprise. Um, the law and the gospel. Um, and the two aren't the same. And the two never should be confluded to be the same. The two don't exist to be the same. They, uh, they have two completely different roles. As the law is meant, as Galatians says, to drive us to Christ, it's the gospel uh, which then brings that, that redemption, that life, that resurrection, um, precisely in that sense of that relationship. That he moves towards me, and I don't move towards him. I don't move towards the goal of of, of redemption or atonement with God, being at-one-ment with God. That's what that word breaks down. Um, uh, it moves completely to me. And so that's that's the preface. <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's, that's where we are. Um, so to get into that, I thought we'd start with the scripture. But before I do that, any comments or thoughts on that little... That little intro first, moving through um, Descartes to I exist in a relationship, therefore I am, out of the imago Dei, an understanding of my being made in the image of God, and then uh, uh, with the, a proper distinction between the law and the gospel. That These oftentimes film or art, like a, a print, um, which, which, which is cathartic, which forces me out of myself into another place. It's mm-hmm. oftentimes the law. which is is being exercised. And the law tells me who I actually am. Because the law, remember, it's just like in legal parlance. It's the bar. And it wants wants me to see things as they actually are, to borrow Gerhard Faraday's phrase. Um, And so the law, which doesn't blink, you know, it's the roving eye of Sauron. Um, It's never asleep. The law tells me who I actually am. Now, there's a real collision and we'll see that in Mary Tyler Moore's character in, in Ordinary People, as she attempts to wrest control uh, from this word, uh, which which doesn't need to be created. It's always there. It's sown in us. That's, what, that's what's meant by original sin. It's original to us. It's sown in us. We call that now DNA, um, where it's just a part of who we are. We don't have to create law. We live in its culture. We swim. It's the water in which we we uh we swim as fish. So any any comments or thoughts before we look at a little bit of Romans 6 and then move to the uh to the uh to the audiovisual parts of our program today. Um, well out of this, um, Romans 6, um, which is the part where Paul speaks about baptism, um get a little bit of a horse. Um, you know, I have two daughters and we christened them and all that and then I realized there was some some distinctions in words. I, I never referred to baptism as christening, but we had two christenings. Um, what does that mean? Maybe um, no, he's not listening. I don't know, is um, what is christening? You know, becoming little Christ, and it's like, whoa, you know, that's not it. That's definitely not it. Um, uh, but that's, that's, that's what's held up in that idea where we put on nice dresses and, and gowns and all that and bonnets, and I'm not, not, not railing, it's that right now. <laughs> um but I am railing it's the idea that we're doing something at these times because baptism in in the in the, in the New Testament's understanding we should have a little bit of a violent we um, uh, um, should be off put by the idea of baptism. Baptism is death, same with the cross which has become nice jewelry. Go look at the Sandy what is it called? the sacoista or something like that? Anyway, so cross in the bookstore, um, run, don't walk. Um, uh, cross is an instrument of death. Baptism is, is death. We are plunged beneath, and it's in our liturgy. We, we, we hear it, we just don't hear it. We are plunged beneath the waters, as in the flood, which, remember, the flood, it's not all about a rainbow. It's God's judgment and his exercise of wrath, rightfully, upon his creation. And, um, Baptism is death. We are, we are pushed under the waters until we don't, we don't move anymore. Um, we, are, we are held under until we die. Um, and that's where Paul is here in Romans 6. So Romans 6, um, starting at Romans 6, 2, um, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Because baptism is to bring us to the end of ourselves and therefore to the end of sin and its reign over us. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, brought to our death, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now I don't want to leap ahead because Paul's not done there. He's still got to go through Romans 7 and and work out the idea of the continuing nature of sin. Even as we have died, but the law's word has not, that we become best seen as two people. Um one of whom uh, is fully alive and justified by God through his word and the atoning work of, of Christ on his cross. but my second person, that's what mr. Hyde but the doctor no that's, that's that's the Jekyll Mr. Hyde, whoever the bad guy is, is the one who's dead and absolutely alive to sin, living you know for the pursuit of the flesh um, and we're at once both of those at the same time. Those two people are best called in shorthand, a Christian—that's the definition of a Christian—one who is at once just but sinful. Um, so we still haven't gone there. So this isn't a full—you know—it's not the end of the story. But we're here in this 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 word for one who has died has been set free from sin. Way to help us. This is a great little book if anybody wants to 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 pursue this idea or some of any of these ideas. It's a little bit dense um, if you want to look at it from a, a more of a strict. Theological perspective, um, a man named Stephen Paulson, who's a who himself is a Lutheran. It's called Lutheran theology. It's less about, say, Lutheran denomination and more about the man of Luther and, and where all this goes. And here's what he says um, in commenting on 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 this idea: Paul reveals that the law has not died. This law, remember, the law always accuses. This law, which is the bar, this this thing, which is always. Um, working its work upon me in order to tell me who I actually am, which is oftentimes going to really sort of collide with who I think I am or the efforts at control that I put forth to live the life I think I want to live. And that's what we're going to see as an illustration in in Ordinary People. Um, Paul reveals that the law has not died. It is the I, the perpetually existing subject under the law, who has died, And yet the law goes right on accusing. For if baptism worked, shouldn't the law be silent and the eye be without sin? No. The difficulty is that the law is right. Sin remains after baptism, and we feel it. And so it's this experience of my knowing the pangs of conscience, you might call it. My experience of knowing disconnection or alienation or want or deprivation or grief or hunger, or uh, vulnerability, as Brene Brown put it, the, the TED Talk that we looked at earlier. That's the experience of a law, and that's where, in fact, it could be good news. That's the good of Good Friday. And he goes on, you know, putting out a, a sort of a, a almost a Paul-like series of, of rhetorical questions. What do you, a baptized person, say when the law correctly accuses you of sin? Do you not claim so this is for the Christian? What do we do as Christians when the law correctly accuses us of sin? Do you... You do not claim that the law has made a false accusation, um, nor do you claim that there appears to be a sin beyond Christ's reach, and therefore you must seek another remedy, or rhubarb, and that's from something in his book, like penance. Paul teaches a peculiar defense by which you plead guilty, but claim a remarkable extenuating circumstance. So it's definitely sort of a lawyer's language here. Paul teaches a peculiar defense by which you plead guilty, but claim a remarkable extenuating circumstance. But I am dead, and you, law, have no jurisdiction over the dead. Death is the unforeseen defense for a sinner that leaves the law speechless, because at death, the law has reached its outer limit. The baptized says, Law, your accusation is quite correct, but the wh- you to whom you point is dead, and therefore you are without authority in this case. Paul says, Do you not know that the law rules over a person only as long as he lives? The law is exactly right, but only about living people. And so this is the beginning of our end. This is being defined, brought all the way to the end of ourselves by the law, which then brings us to the uh, to the immediate threshold of the gospel, um, where we are brought forward to the end of ourselves um, by the, the right uh, accusation of the law. As, as the Bible is very clear on, isn't the law good? It is a good, right, and holy thing. Um, but it's good, right, and holy, only to bring us to the end of ourselves, and bring us to the threshold of hope, and bring us right to the to the uh, to the door of the gospel. And that's where we're going to sort of shift gears and look at um, two clips where they're saying, somewhat in a, in a very different way, I think, um, at least one level, the same thing I'm saying. Um, and then we'll look again at at what's really redemptive and what's really true. So that's got a little deep, I know. It's a little bit, a little bit. A little bit sort of an assault within the first 15 minutes. But any, any comments or thoughts before we look at, look at these clips? So,
1: you're not saying that that's where he ends his defense?
0: Okay. Not in the least. Okay. He's <laughs> not even... We hadn't, we hadn't gotten to the second half. We hadn't gotten to Romans 7, Romans 8, 9, 10, 11. So. Now, all we are is dead. But you have to die before you have life. Um, the way out is through. That's going to be a phrase now introduced for the rest of the class. Um, the way out is through. So what's the way to life? Through death. Yea, verily I say unto you, any man who would, um, uh, who would live must first take up his cross daily um, and die and follow me. That's Jesus. Um, that's where we are. The way out, the way to life, is through death. Um, if we are baptized with him, if we die with him, plunged beneath the waters of the flood with Christ, um, so also shall we share in his life and his resurrection. Um, but it's the beginning of really good news. The law has no dominion over a dead man. That's a good thing. Um, um, comments? Anything else? Yeah.
1: thinking about Moses. Mm-hmm. He's the giver of the law. And then his name, I drew him out of water. Mm-hmm. And then your That's what Moses means?
0: That's right, I forgot. Yeah.
1: And so I'm, my brain is trying to...
0: Connect that? Mm-hmm. That's a good thought. Um, Sorry. No, 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 no where I am, it's where I went immediately, it's not the whole, but I went immediately to the transfiguration where Christ is there on the uh, on the mountain and he's with, um, he's with Moses, isn't he? not Abraham, he's with Moses and Elijah um, and they're very clear, Moses and Elijah, on, on who's the source of life, who's the source of their eternal life and the one who was drawn through the water, um, Moses uh, and Paul would say this, too, in 2 Corinthians, talking about Moses and the veil and all that. Th- the law was not his salvation. Um, mm-hmm. The law was the first word of God, um, but but not his salvation. His Redeemer yet liveth, as, as, as Job would say so many hundreds of years later. That's a good point. I'd forgotten all about water, through water, so, yeah. And... And uh, as was picked up later, this is not a, a scriptural word, but but Christ is no new Moses. He's not a second Moses. He's the He's the He's the Messiah, the anointed one of God. God was pointing. Absolutely. So, yeah, all this builds. And then when you move on, um, this this line of theology is sometimes. You know, I didn't mean to go this. I don't want to admit this to be a kind of light class. You know, let's look at a film. You know, ah. Uh, so, oh well. This line of theology, no, no, it's good. Um, y'all are right with me, and I appreciate it. Um, this line of theology is often described as being really weak on the law, and it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, it's being really strong on the law. It's saying the law is so pervasive and so thoroughgoing, the light is sh- so bright. That it burns right to the bone. Remember the X-Files thing? I'm, I'm bad to the bone, baby, said, um, said Jody Foster. That voice. Um, I go all the way to the bone. Um, that's the law. It's not some trite idea of like, you know, don't covet. Okay, that's my challenge for the week. See you all later. I'm going to come back next week and tell you all how I didn't covet all week long and lie all the way through. Um, I mean, it it takes seriously the law of God. Um and so far from being light, I mean, it's talking about death. This isn't christening. We're talking about us plunge our babies beneath the water and, uh, and, and until they quit kicking so that, that Christ can bring real life to them, to a place where um, the enemies of God, the world, the flesh, the devil, the law, sin, and death, have no dominion over them, for they are sealed as Christ own forever. Now, that's a big deal. <laughs> um, Let's look at this. Um, Sherry Turkle is a psychologist um, who I didn't know until I looked at this. You know these TED talks. Um, I did one with Brene Brown. The same clip for several weeks. They're fun. They're great. Um, uh, I don't look at all of them by any means, but sometimes people forward me one and, uh, in different areas that I like to think about. Um, and this is one of them. Um, she is a. Uh, uh, let me move quickly. She is a researcher, a psychologist who, for the last 15 years, i.e. when um, technology has existed, sort of, in, in handheld, portable devices. Um, she's been studying the effects of that technology on on, uh, on the way that we have identity and the way that we relate to each other. So this is very much where I'm jumping in with that idea of what I said about the imago dei. Um, what is it doing to us as we are um, connecting? And she's not a, a word that Matt used earlier in our conversation. She's not a ludite, um, one who's against technology and progress by any means. Um, but the uh, but the excessive use um, uh, that can be a problem. So let's just look a little bit of her um, uh, her talk, and then we'll make a comment or two before we watch some ordinary uh, people. Thanks. I believe,
1: Thanks. and I'm here to make the case that we're letting it take us places that we don't want to go. Over the past 15 years, I've studied technologies of mobile communication, and I've interviewed. Hundreds and hundreds of people, young and old, about their plugged-in lives. And what I have found is that our little devices, those little devices in our pockets, are so psychologically powerful that they don't only change what we do, they change who we are. Some of the things we do now with our devices are things that only a few years ago we would have found odd or disturbing but they've quickly come to seem familiar just how we do things so just to take some quick examples people text or do email during corporate board meetings they text and shop and go on facebook during classes during presentations actually during all meetings people talk to me about the important new skill of making eye contact (laughs) while you're texting People explain to me that it's hard, but that it can be done. Parents text and do email at breakfast and at dinner. Well, their children complain about not having their parents' full attention, but then these same children deny each other their full attention. This is a recent shot of my daughter and her friends being together, well, not being, together. And we even text at funerals. I study this. We remove ourselves from our grief or from our reverie and we go into our phones. Why does this matter? It matters to me because I think we're setting ourselves up for trouble. Trouble certainly in how we relate to each other, but also trouble in how we relate to ourselves in our capacity for self-reflection. We're getting used to a new way of being alone together. People want to be with each other, but also elsewhere, connected to all the different places they want to be. People want to customize their lives. They want to go in and out of all the places they are because the thing that matters most to them is control over where they put their attention. So you want to go to that board meeting but you only want to pay attention to the bits that interest you. And some people think that's a good thing. But you can end up hiding from each other, even as we're all constantly connected to each other. A 50-year-old businessman laments to me that he feels he doesn't have colleagues anymore at work. When he goes to work, he doesn't stop by to talk to anybody, he doesn't call. And he says he doesn't want to interrupt his colleagues because he says they're too busy on their email. But then he stops himself and he says, you know, I'm not telling you the truth. I'm the one who doesn't want to be interrupted. I think I should want to, but actually I'd rather just do things on my Blackberry. Across the generations, I see that people can't get enough of each other if and only if they can have each other at a distance in amounts they can control. I call it the Goldilocks effect. Not too close, not too far, just right. But what might feel just right for that middle aged executive can be a problem for an adolescent who needs to develop face to face relationships. And
0: so we'll pause there. I may use some of her talk next week too when do the Not Loud well, Love It part. But she's, um, What's your entry? I think in this whole idea of what I said earlier, um, it's not I think, therefore I am, but I exist in a relationship, and therefore I I know that I am. Um, And There's this experience that we have of of that we're getting good at being alone together um, with those those shots. And this was, you know, talking about Nicaragua trip, you know, very apparent. We were in Nicaragua, phones didn't work. remarked several times by several of the the ones who went, the kids and the leaders both, how how great it was not to be sort of bound to their phone, um, bound to, you know, everything on it, texting, Googling, uh, 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 you know, the Internet, just everything. Um, Said, this is so great. What do you think happened as soon as we touched down in Miami? (laughs) On. And there was a shot. I mean, absolutely. I thought about the same thing, and then I saw this. Uh, I looked over, and there's 12 people, you know, who three hours before, I mean, just totally into each other. And then there are 12 people just looking down, you know, alone together. And it's not, not anti-technology, but it, 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 it matters. I mean, something's going on. Um, something's definitely happening, and we're not sure, we're not completely sure of what it is. Um, and it is. And it's not just technology. Technology has not sort of unearthed this new dark side of human nature. It's been around from from the garden, from Adam and Eve. Um, 1980, the movie um, Ordinary People, same theme, similar themes, has nothing to do with technology. Um, We're right here where uh, uh, one woman, um, the the story, um, for those who might remember it, there's a a, sort of a New England family, um, upper middle class, uh, he's a tax attorney. She's she just manages the house. Um, two children, both are in high school. Maybe maybe the uh, the oldest was in college age or something like that. He dies in a boating accident. Um, his brother, the, the character played by Timothy Hutton, um, was also there. Timothy Hutton survived. Um, uh, his brother Buck did not. Um, he died. And so um, he's got. You know, survivor's guilt and having all sorts of issues. He tried to commit suicide. Great shame to the family. Um, Donald Sutherland is the father. He's just awkwardly trying to keep the family kind of working, but he's himself grieving and all that. And there's lots of it's really good acting, actually, Um, uh, sort of out of character from say his 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 role in MASH, Uh, uh, moving through very believably, I think, trying to figure out how. How do I relate both to my wife, but also to my son? And then, meanwhile, Mary Tyler Moore, huge step out from her, her play, playing a comic previously, um, is the is the is the tour de force. She is so tightly wound in trying to control, just what Sherry Turkle said, trying to control the family by bringing, by really just ignoring the truth. Remember, the law wants to tell us the way things actually are. She will not abide it. She cannot abide it. Um, uh, And she's so tightly wound, just absolutely trying to defend everything. What does this play out? I mean, it's the law, but it plays out in all sorts of ways. You can call it denial. You can call it a defense mechanism. You can call it... um, Minimization. You can, uh, there's all sorts of words we can come up with it, but it's the law which is always there, it's sewn into us. Um, uh, death is right at hand, um, and it's this very believable portrait of a family struggling through this horrific situation. Um, for reasons of time, I'm not going to show all the clips that I had um, intended, but but um, the young man, Timothy Bottom, Timothy Hutton, um, begins to see Judd Hirsch, a psychiatrist. That's what I mentioned as the uh, the um, uh, the, the redemptive um, character, one scene, uh, some great scenes um, when, when they're together, uh, he, Judd Hirsch, walks them through and says, look, feelings aren't supposed to tickle, but you got to know them. Um, you got to be able to get through and, and and feel a feeling. The way out is through. Paul Zoll said that in his... Uh, book Grace in Practice, for those of us who read that, you must allow some way the feelings to be felt. Um, if you can't, it, 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 it shuts off that, that I exist in relationship, and therefore I am. Um, uh, great line that he says, look, you're the doctor, I'm supposed to feel better, right? Without missing a beat, he comes right in there and says, not necessarily. And that's exactly it. That's been one of my threads, primary threads of this whole series, is to rethink the word blessing. We think blessings make us feel better. And Judd Hirsch, you know, totally a Trojan horse, not necessarily. He's calling life the way life actually is. Um, that's the beginning of a redemptive aspect. So fast forward through all that. There's a, a scene where um, uh, the, the young man Conrad just had a uh, an explosive session with uh, with Judd Hirsch. Um, a lot of lot of lot of language and all that in that. But but it's the first time he kind of cracks through and. And, uh, and the young man finally shows emotion. He's in touch with a feeling that he's really angry. He's angry, at and he doesn't even know what yet, but he's angry. He's just livid, like most of us would be. Um, we'll pick it up there, and then there's a, a really, probably the best scene, the scene that's most often associated, I think, with ordinary people, where um, they're trying to get a family photo, and the discomfort of, of the mother, Mary Tyler Moore's character, and sort of the awkwardness of Donald Sutherland. And then this young man who's beginning to... To, to regain life, come to the end of himself. The way out is through. He's finally starting to die, um, uh, is uh, is evident. Um, and then you're going to see Mary Tyler Moore's character um, using a plate, saying, "I think it can be fixed." And she's just trying to hold something together by the absolute string. And she can't, she can't allow, she can't allow the truth. She can't allow a feeling. She can't allow something that's outside of her control to enter. So we'll look at that, and then we'll wrap up. Let me get my Q. Um fifty four forty five. It's just had that cathartic explosion.
1: Little advice about feeling
0: kiddo.
1: Don't
0: expect
1: it always to take
0: <laughs> <laughs> Those are her, her parents also in the picture, the ones taking the with the camera.
1: your mother's butt. Okay. Now, all right. Smile. You're taller than your mother is. Really? That's wonderful. All right, smile. Hold it. hold it level. Wonderful. Okay, now I want to take cow and okay? Great, sure. Go on. Oh come on, you can do better than that. I want to take a picture of Connie and his mother. no, I'll tell you what, let's get the three men in there and I'll take a picture of you. Connie, move in a little closer to your mother. Okay. Prize winner. Yeah, that's great. Portrait. Do it. Page one. Lake Forrester. Isn't it, Father? Yes, it is. Yes, yes. I oh, love it. it. Yeah, yeah, sure it. doesn't come. Yeah, Hold it. Connie, smile. Calvin! Just a second, smile. Calvin, give me the camera. No, I didn't get it yet, Beth. Come on, give me the camera. Beth, give me the camera. I want a really good picture of the two of you, okay? No, but I really want to get a shot of the three of you men. Give me the camera,
0: Calvin. Not until I get a picture of the two of you. Cal. Hang on a second. Give me the
1: goddamn camera! painfully believable.
0: I think it can be saved. She says, I think it can be saved. She has a kind of a telling conversation with her mother there. Um... She's, she's Mary Tyler Moore's the star. Um, the movie's really about her. Um, some of the feedback that I read about was, and I, I did remember when this movie came out. I was young, I was nine years old. Um, but I remember it. It was one of my mom's favorite movies, and so it was kind of a thing in our house for a while. And, uh, and people thought she was evil. They thought she was just sort of mommy dearest evil, if you remember that one with who? Joan Crawford, is that right? Um, I don't see it that way at all. I mean, I have such compassion. On this woman and she pulls it off brilliantly um, she's not evil she's just she's trying all by herself just to hold this on you know and there's that moment of just vulnerability I think, I think it can be saved and she's you know, plain I think it can be saved trying to do something she's totally ill-equipped she has no bearing no compass whatsoever on how to get her family back much less herself um, in fact she's probably so Self-absorbed, that she doesn't have any thought about about Conrad or her husband, and their marriage doesn't make it. Um, uh, that's the end of the movie. Um, the father and the son reconcile and have a have the beginnings of what's going to obviously the line is to be a really um, true relationship. But she's left out. She is not. There's no redemption for her. She stays out in the cold. Um, it's that line. Uh, it's the opposite of a line. If Romans 6-7 says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. She is so desperately clinging to the old life, the life where she's the master and commander of her own ship and her fate, and she's trying to retain control, even as a broken plate, is the, uh, the occasion for, for almost crying. And there's a line that says she didn't, you know, she didn't cry at her, at her son's funeral. She couldn't do that. Um, I think it can be saved. And she's yearning, she's yearning for salvation, um, but she's not brought to the end. So that brings up a whole host of questions, which even if we had time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't step in. So, so what then? How does she arrange her own death? Why can't somebody come in and save her if she knows that she's not doing well and that she needs to be saved? I think it can be saved. What about that thorny question then of, of why is is, uh, is the son? Working through to his own death, so that he can go work through it. The way out is through to reach life, life where it's outside of of uh, of the law, sin, and death. And why is she left in? It's a great question. Um, there are answers to approach that uh, uh, that question. Um, but for now, just kind of leave it there. Um, the film just evokes Romans six to me. This idea of being baptized and having the peculiar defense to the law, saying, uh, your accusation is correct, Sir Law. Um, however, uh, I'm dead. <laughs> and so it has, no, it has no case in this court. Um, that's a different way to think about things, and that's where he's coming to. Um, redemption as our own death, as a way towards life, the way out is through. Um, and it's there in Romans 6. So I commend that to you. Any comments? I have time for maybe one or two. Yeah? I just have one thought about, I from
1: the beginning, how you were saying, you know, versus Descartes, think, before I know how it really is that we exist because of that I feel like it just
0: speaks to the Trinity. You know, God is That's how we're made in His image, as He exists within Himself in relationship. That's that's the image of God into which we're made. 100% right. It's not that God looks like me. <laughs> <Let's> be God. <laughs> um, something entirely different. Our image is not that visible image. He's not sort of the old man with the beard. Um, something else. Well, let me pray. I commend Romans 6 to you. Um, ordinary people. I think it's even on YouTube, so you can even get it that way. It's, uh, it's something I'd love some feedback if you have any others. So um, let's pray. Gracious Father, um, correct me where I'm wrong, uh, where your word um, was spoken, um, either the word which brings us to the end of ourselves um, or the word which uh, finally at that death uh, breeds life, um, eternal life, true life, um, resurrection. Uh, the gospel um, allow that word to uh, to be um, to be known, to be felt, to be experienced, um, to be true. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, y'all. See you soon. Thanks, you You're welcome. Blue Dite. Yes.